Hello and welcome to the second IEMA Greening the News podcast. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. I'm IEMA's Chief Executive and I'll be your host for the next half hour or so in which we will consider whether democracy or autocracy can provide the action that the global community needs to combat climate change. But first, a little about IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. We're an organisation that supports the training, development and education of environment and sustainability professionals around the world. We have more than 17,000 members in more than 100 countries. We're also very active in supporting the development of policy to make the change our members wish to see at UN, regional and nation state level. Well, in a moment, I'll introduce our guests this month, but firstly, here's a roundup of the environmental news compiled and read by Andre Farah. The COVID pandemic has taught us lots of things, including an understanding that nature and the life support systems of our planet are critical to our future well-being. Connection to nature has risen over the last year, and so has a recognition that the pandemic is just one symptom of what happens if the natural world is stressed to breaking point. So it's timely, more than timely, that the Environment Bill is due to re-emerge in Parliament on the 26th of May for its third attempt to pass into law. The bill this time will look different as a government amendment to include binding targets for wildlife populations will be included that will attempt to halt species declines. It's a move that's been widely welcomed as the foundation for a significant policy shift. It's been characterised as biodiversity's net zero moment. In a slew of related announcements, the long-awaited tree and peat strategies open the door to significant action to contribute to the government's plans to move to net zero. In addition, the establishment of a reintroduction task force will look at re-establishing species lost in England, such as the wildcat and golden eagle. A chorus of the devils in the detail comments always follow significant announcements, but there is a real opportunity to align action to tackle the biodiversity crisis through nature restoration with progress towards transition to net zero. So-called nature-based solutions are gaining traction as the next big idea, but gaps in financing and governance remain, an issue highlighted in a recent report by the British Ecological Society. An announcement of a 47% budget increase for Natural England goes some way to allaying those fears. Further uncertainty remains, particularly around how the planning bill, also announced in the recent Queen's speech, will rub along with the Environment Bill. Proposed relaxation of planning laws could undermine the delivery of environmental protection. Equally, the planning bill can provide the means to integrate planning and environmental ambitions and provide mechanisms that are missing from the Environment Bill. As we await the details of the planning bill, it's becoming clear that this will be a key test of the government's green credentials. As more and more countries announce pledges to net zero in the run-up to COP26, a sobering report from the International Energy Agency casts doubt on the scale of ambition. Recognising that current pledges fall well short of what's required to meet the net zero CO2 emissions by 2050, the IEA have published a comprehensive roadmap to meet the 2050 target, with governmental action boosting clean energy generation and reducing fossil fuel use and creating millions of jobs worldwide. Here, the UK emissions trading scheme is launched with a debut price of £50 per tonne. This is seen as a significant step on the government's stated aim of establishing the world's first net zero cap and trade market. We are very proud as a staff team that we're able to provide many different ways for our members to network with each other and with the first class speakers that we attract for our webinars and podcasts. 
One subject that frequently gets discussed when members get together are the role of governments and in particular government structures in providing support for meaningful climate change. Some commentators argue that modern capitalism with its emphasis on consumption is at the root of the current environmental crisis. We live with the illusion, they say, of our ability to affect change when in fact, we're all kidding ourselves. Liberal democracies, they contend, are so cushioned by the comforts of capitalism that no one will ever vote to give them up. And no one will ever vote to give up consuming beyond our planetary means, even in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence that our relentless appetites are unsustainable. However, are other forms of government getting it right? Are there any administrations who are managing to get the balance right between economic growth and sustainability? Indeed, does the innovation that we need to develop solutions for these problems only exist where free thinking is allowed and encouraged? Well, joining me to discuss these fascinating but complex issues are two of the first class speakers I was talking about a little earlier. Derwood Selke is founder and president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development in Washington, D.C. and in Paris, where he focuses on fast mitigation strategies to protect the climate. A lawyer by training, he is a global expert on environmental law, having founded environmental policy programs at leading universities across the world. Damien Plant is defense attaché at the British embassies in Austria, Switzerland and Slovenia. He's an expert on British defense relations and in a long career has liaised with a diverse range of diplomatic, governmental and industry stakeholders, working on a number of sustainability projects. And recently, he's been awarded an IEMA Fellowship. Congratulations, Damien. Damien, if I could perhaps come to you first. Um, you have worked in many countries that have discovered their, or rediscovered their democratic roots, as it were. I mean, do you think it's possible for, for democratic countries to affect action on climate change? Um, well, in terms of democratic countries, you, you've already um, highlighted some of the challenges and uh, and I hadn't thought about the, the consumption one off the top of my head just now. But um, democracy is messy. Uh, it's slow. Um, there's a lot of consensus building required um, and indeed multiple stakeholders. So um, you need to bring all the, the levers of state together uh, in a way that might be easier for, for an autocratic nation. So, I mean, of course, of course. Uh, we can get there, and of course, uh, we will. We will get there, says the optimist. Um, but it will be uh, the the downside, perhaps, principally, would be it's slower under this system. Um, and but the principal upside, perhaps, from my perspective, is actually it will be more consensus based. It will uh, it will respect diversity of voice and attitude and opinion, and 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 all all of the stakeholders in, in society, not just the view of the leadership. Now, we should say that you're um, coming to the end of this stage of your diplomatic career and your views are entirely personal. They don't re represent Her Majesty's uh, government. But you must have seen some change, really, in, in the time that you've even worked in the, in the cities that you're working at the moment. Well, absolutely. And we were talking just before the recording started um, about both remembering the end of the Cold War. And, and wow, you know, I'm, you know, uh, to fess up, my career has lasted 32 years and it started uh, literally weeks before the Berlin Wall came down. And then if you look at all the things over time that have happened since then, wow, what a compression of, of history. Is it going faster, I wonder? But um, yes, all sorts of changes. And 
At the moment, though, I'm, I'm feeling quite optimistic about things in that, you know, I've been tracking the sustainability issue since 1992 when I was a mountain leader with a bunch of glaciologists in Iceland. And we were we were measuring how glacial retreat worked and how fast it was. And, um, you know, and within literally the last couple of years, you know, I've, I feel there's been a real wake up in certainly the, the areas I move in. The armed forces is a particular example. My own armed forces, I was lobbying internally um, for, for many years to, to little effect. But, but, you know, literally within the last couple of years, you know, we've now, you know, we've now said not only are we going to take responsibility for our part, um, but we, in, the, in typical British fashion, now will aspire to be a global leader in, in helping armed forces, one, to put their own house in order, but two, also to prepare for the undoubted challenges that climate change is going to bring and that ultimately, you know, the armed forces are going to have to help to sort. Dilbert, um, Damien's quite optimistic. We have seen a huge change uh, in the US with the Biden administration and uh, the approach to climate change. And do you think that democracies can rid themselves of the drag that consensus and mandate seeking, um, that's inevitable, really. You have to build that consensus in order to get those decisions. Well, I'm an optimist uh, as well, uh, perhaps foolishly so sometimes. But uh, if you don't have optimism, you can't get out of bed and do your job. So I'd like to, to share the sense of urgent optimism you know, I think democracies have something unique to offer uh, in, a, in addition to what we've already identified as some of the, the slow drag that they present, and that's the ability to innovate. So democracies are uniquely capable of designing, building, and marketing what is needed when it is needed. And I think we're seeing right now that uh, climate solutions are needed. We have many of them already to move to clean energy, but we don't have them all. That includes uh, if we're going to go in the direction that the IEA has suggested in its uh, net zero at 2050 set of scenarios, uh, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. You know, and if we're going to do that, we're going to need to innovate to get there. If we're going to rely some, as we must, on removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, as well as methane and N2O, uh, we're going to need innovation. So I see that as, as something that uh, we have a unique role to play in on the democracy side. And of course, I am thrilled every morning when I wake up to see the Biden team in place. John Kerry, Gina McCarthy, uh, Jonathan Pershing, Rick Duke, uh, uh, you know, the whole team, Melanie Nakagawa in the White House. These are brilliant people who know their job and know how to use the levers of government to move faster than usual because they work together. So I think you're going to see government speeding up. I mean, look at what Biden has done in his first 100 plus days. I mean, he managed to get 40 government heads of state to come to his climate summit. And he started to refocus on not two degrees, but 1.5 as the maximum the world can tolerate. And also not 2050, which had been the, the, the main goal going into COP26, but 2030. So he understands that if you don't win the race to 2030, 
the sprint to 2030. You're not going to be in the marathon to 2050, let alone the ultra marathon to 2100, as we learn to remove CO2 and the other pollutants from the atmosphere. So, so I think that's been phenomenal. And then he's also focused on the short-lived super climate pollutants, uh, HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons used as refrigerants under the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. She said, we're going to ratify in the United States. This can give us uh, up to 0.5 degrees Celsius of avoided warming. In the United States alone, a new, P, a new EPA report that is uh, still in draft says, we'll save $280 billion. That's the benefits from just this uh, HFC amendment, uh, the Kigali Amendment in the U.S. globally, much, much, much more. And then methane. So you saw leaders... Uh, talk about methane at the Earth Day summit that Biden put together, including, remarkably, Putin. So, you know, here's the president of, uh, of a very autocratic uh, nature in a, in a country that uh, has its own problems, but saying, look, uh, methane's going to be a problem. And we have the recent report from, uh, led by Dr. Drew Schindel at Duke University for the Climate and Clean Air Coalition that says reducing methane is the single biggest and fastest way to slow warming and to avoid feedbacks and tipping points. They're going to push us into what Damien's talking about. I mean, the, we're, we're going to see military conflicts, uh, you know, that are, that are going to be hard to uh, extinguish around the world. Uh, mass migrations in a world that's too hot to live in for half the population. I mean, it's a pretty ugly future if we don't step on the uh, step on the. I won't say the gas because that's not the right metaphor today. But if we if we don't speed up the race here, <laughs> I'd like to come to that point about um, climate change as a security threat in a moment. But um, I was very struck by something you were saying about this uh, the amazing team that Biden's got together, and yet I think. You could say that kind of highlights the fragility of uh, democratic accomplishment, because in 18 months time, maybe a little bit more, it could be a very different situation. Uh, th there could be a very different situation in the Congress, in, in the Senate. Uh, it might be from a, you know, a relatively easy path to an incredibly difficult kind of gridlocked government in terms of policy. And that could all be on 30, 40, 50,000 votes of a population of 300 or so million. So how do you manage as a democratically elected administration to, to knit those changes in? I and mean, we saw with the, with the Obama administration what happened with Trump. How do you make sure that you, you provide a foundation that is irremovable to get that sort of change? Yeah, a, a very penetrating question. I think you do it by, by making sure that you, you take the kind of bipartisanship approach that Biden is taking. And he, he's correctly defined bipartisanship, not as what the Republican senators will do or the Republican representatives, but it's the Republican citizens throughout the world and the centrist who go back and forth from Democratic to, to Republican or, or are independent. So he's taken his message into the field, into the citizens saying, do you like this? So if you look at his poll numbers for both his own uh, approval rating, extremely high, but his policy uh, approval rating is even higher. Uh, 
So the citizens, the Republicans, more conservative in so many ways, like what he's doing. And eventually, those who represent those citizens will have to start accommodating what their citizens want if they are going to be reelected. Yes, we have midterms coming up. You know, we have every two years, you reelect a third of the Senate and all of the House. And that means our political system is pretty dynamic. And, and in, you know, when it goes wrong, it's a good thing that we have, uh, we have this uh, short fuse. When it's going well, you have to worry about building an, an enduring coalition. And, you know, I think Biden, Biden happens to be the guy for the moment. You know, he's the steady at the helm, but he's, but he's also, no one could move faster than Biden is moving. I mean, look at what he's done with the relief bill. Look what he's doing to propose with the infrastructure bill. I mean, he's he's steady uh, in a in a clever way because he's also moving so fast that you'd think he might be tripping. He's not. You know, he's got this dynamic instability tripping forward with great energy, and um, and and I think I think the citizens of this country really like that, David. Um, obviously, you've had a, a long experience, diplomatic experience, in the, the sort of countries, as we were mentioning, that have rediscovered democracy. And in some cases, uh, that democratic experiment is going in, in very different directions to other countries in Western Europe. I mean, that point that Doe was making about bipartisanship and consensus building, um, is that something that you're seeing or is it something that you're concerned about, maybe fraying at the edges? I think fraying at the edges is something that sounds reasonably familiar. I mean, just to build on uh, in a small way on what Durwood was saying and to use my, you know, principally military background, of course, you know, in wars, you know, you form a war cabinet and you make it non-party political. And certainly, you know, we did that properly in World War Two. Um, and um, and then I know that with smaller conflicts, you know, some of which I've been around the fringes of, since then, you know, you, you always are more deferential to, you know, what would normally be an opposition party and you're more inclusive and trusting and so on. And so, you know, that, that would appear to be, you know, a way you can uh, you can make things better is is to make certain issues non-party political. And if we're talking about an existential threat, which so many people are, then um, it would seem to merit, you know, at least considering that um, kind of approach. I'm, I have to say, I'm less optimistic in terms of, the places that I've seen um, operationally, militarily. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wouldn't attempt to, to answer why, but, you know, I, I think of, you know, places, I mean, even Northern Ireland, which was my first operational experience where that's fraying democratically, but places like Kosovo and Bosnia, I think, I think you know, that the, the direction of travel is broadly good. Um, uh, but, you know, you go to Iraq and Afghanistan, it, it, is, it is trickier. And, you know, so it is hard to make democracy stick, I suppose. And uh, and these things need to be organic, perhaps, and they need to be um, aligned to the, the local culture and so on. And I mean, just one thing, I remember a business school in a castle in Germany that the German government was funding to, um, to teach um, capitalist business practices to the Russians. And that would have been in the late 90s. Wow, you know, we're, you know, people went over backwards to make it all work, but it has to come from home as well. It's a, that's a very good point, and uh, I think it brings us very nicely into the conversation, maybe about the more autocratic style of regime. Um, 
in, in one way, you don't have to worry about the consensus. But on the other hand, if you don't persuade the person or people at the top, then it's not going to happen. And I was very struck, David, by your reference to the, the, the Russian administration. And again, we can maybe think of Turkey increasingly in that category as well. Do you think there are some benefits, any benefits to being able to deal with a set of people at the top of a government that can actually make change happen very quickly? I mean, if we think about China, for example, and its move towards non-fossil fuel energy, which has been remarkable in some ways. Maybe there are some benefits. I mean, I, I it's hard to hard to say, but they, they do need some uh, citizen consensus. It's not that they don't need some support. I mean, they've got a billion four, uh, you know, in uh, China, India, which is uh, democratic, but um, but still uh, struggles. So you need the some uh, support from the citizens. They have to to be somewhat uh, satisfied so that they don't take to the streets, you know, even in an autocratic regime. So, it, of course, um, it's it's not the same kind of consensus that you have to have for a democracy. I don't see the you know, the inherent advantages of the approach that China is taking, for example. Uh, but but what I do see is the growing appreciation at the head of state level, all types of regimes that were in a climate emergency. Now, it's not quite uh, fully grasped. I mean, Damien said correctly, it's an existential risk. You know, leaders know uh, about their economy and what it means when it tanks and how to try to dig out from that hole as we're doing, building back better now. They understand uh, certain industry sectors and the need for jobs. And they understand their military alliances and, um, and threats. They're, they've got to move climate, both the threat and the opportunity, to that leader level. So when Putin and Xi and Modi uh, and the others truly understand what the risk is, then we get back to the, the war footing that Damien mentioned with more bipartisan, or in this case, we, we'd say just cooperation at the leader level. We got to solve this problem. I mean, we can't do it without China. China can't do it without us, can't do it without Europe. I mean, we're all in this together and it's a pretty, it's, it's going to be messy if we don't get that cooperation moving. And I think the, the signal from uh, the Biden summit was very positive. The spirit going into COP26 in, uh, in Glasgow is much better today than it was just a few months ago. And again, the focus, the as President Macron said, you know, 2030 is the new 2050. I mean, this is the, the focus now. And that wasn't the case just a few months ago for COP26. So we're we're seeing the emergency, and I, I'll bring up just a couple of the, the factors here that, um, that you might want to focus on. So we are losing the reflective sea ice in the Arctic at an accelerating rate. And as we do that, we're warming the world because you lose the reflectivity of the albedo, the heat, the uh, incoming solar radiation goes right into the ocean, warms up the ocean more, and the atmosphere melts more of the ice and collapses more of the permafrost, which releases CO2, 
uh, releases methane and N2O, three super climate pollutants. And we are on course to lose the remaining half of the Arctic sea ice that's left within 10 to 15 years. And that will add the equivalent of a trillion tons of CO2 and warming and advance uh, the targets by 25 years from the future to the present. We can't afford that. And that, that'll collapse um, the permafrost. And we're also on the, the verge of uh, destroying the Amazon forest. We've destroyed 17% and we have somewhere between 20 and 25%. And we hit that mark and we have a tipping point where the Amazon destroys the rest of it by itself. So we're, we're seeing the earth feedbacks starting to take over and the tipping points getting closer and closer. So, you know, talk about, um, you know, the need for speed here. And then you open up the Arctic. It's a, a geopolitical challenge. Uh, China, Russia, uh, you know, are we, uh, what, who are the Arctic countries? Who has an interest in the Arctic? Well, actually, every country of the world does because the Arctic controls so much of the world's climate system. If you lose the Arctic, I'm afraid you're going to lose control of the climate system completely. But, but uh, that's not necessary because if you slam on the brakes with the super pollutants like methane, you can actually cut the rate of Arctic warming by two-thirds. So we, you know, we do know what to do, but we, we should strengthen the Arctic Council and, and more generally Arctic governance. And yet it's it's interesting, isn't it, if you think of the other existential threat and we've, you know, this is pretty good. We've got 23 minutes into the conversation and I'm afraid I'm raising the uh, the COVID, the C word now. Um, but we look at this, uh, the uh, you know, more, a more recent uh, existential threat and there, yes, there has been cooperation and the work that has been done by the scientific community on the vaccines have been astonishing and yet at the same time we have seen in the US, in India, in other countries um, vaccine nationalism where borders have gone up or supply chains have been uh, stopped from exporting and so I guess we do have to be careful do we do it that we don't end up with that kind of climate change nationalism as well. It's not going to work I mean uh, you know these are principally well mixed gases doesn't matter where you emit them they hurt you everywhere so and and let's let's also not forget the the positive side of the COVID uh, catastrophe, it, which is that we developed vaccines, multiple vaccines, on a heroic timescale. And so, yes, we should have uh, expanded manufacturing. Yes, we probably should uh, relax intellectual property so that other countries can make this faster. And the U.S. is um, is proposing that. So, yes, we can still do better to avoid the nationalism. And I, I think the word nationalism is going to enter the picture is the migration. Climate uh, change will, will make it too difficult for people to live in many places. Where will they go? And we've seen, you know, the Syrian refugees um, destabilize Europe, you know, in, in its governance. And when we get many, many, many more refugees, it's going to be a, a pretty serious threat. Durwood and Damien, thank you so much for, as I said, some fascinating insights and a real, uh, I feel I have much clearer understanding of some of the cogs are moving behind the scenes on some of these big international events. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's it from the IEMA podcast for this month. See you next time.